Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is Valerie again, and I'm so excited to have Fiona Givens back today. We went deeply into some conversation about some of the early mystics, especially the beautiful Julian of Norwich, who teaches us about the true nature of God. And we also talked a lot about how influential her work has been in Fiona's life. And today we have a special treat. We are going to just be a little bit more um, autobiographical, I guess. And I'm going to just have some fun talking to Fiona about her own life and her the development of her own interests as she has grown into the woman that she has become as such a beautiful and tender influence on so many of us on our faith journeys here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So Fiona, I am going to probably just ask you a couple questions here or there, but really more than anything, I would just love for you to share with us your story. Tell us maybe to kick this off, if you would share a little bit more about your early life, your education, and how you came into the church as a young woman. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I I was born in Nairobi, in Kenya. Um, my two brothers were born in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. I spent the in, the formative years of my life in East Africa, and just loved it. You see, my the bright colors I wear. I, I only wear bright colors to tell the the cultural influence was very strong. I, I just loved it. It was just the most beautiful place to grow up. I was raised Catholic. My mum is Irish Catholic. My dad is um, Church of England. But he had been sent to Hamburg in 1945, uh, witnessing the destruction and the starvation and all of the awful things of war. Um, I never actually, he never actually attended church but he was a really beautiful human being. So um, we grew up, had this really idyllic life in Kenya. I had horseback riding lessons, tennis lessons, but the greatest thing I ever had was uh, swimming lessons. And I, both my brothers and I became part of the Kenya swim team. And so we swam against various countries in Africa. We swam against a team from West Germany, it was an absolutely fabulous childhood because all of my friends were swimmers. Uh, we, you know, traveled together and I, I still love to swim. So you will find me down the road at the Heber Aquatic Center three mornings a week swimming my dutiful hour. Um, and I love it. It's my safe place. I remember as a young struggling students, I, I, I was also doing daycare with with uh, and I had my own children and of course uh, our accommodations were really tiny and uh, so Terrell uh, bought me a membership to the pool down the road and we had no money and he would make sure that he was home at five o'clock every day um, from the university so that I could go to swim for an hour he was absolutely lovely so that is my safe place bathrooms I discovered very quickly as a young mother of actually the worst places to try and flee to because the door's being hammered on all the time. But the pool, nobody could get, me, could get to me in the pool. So that was really lovely. Um, when I turned about uh, 12, um, Kenya went through what is called Africanization. 
So all of the bureaucrats of whom my father was one, English bureaucrats, were training primarily Kikuyu. Um, They were the the tribe that stepped forward to take all of their positions, to train them so that there would not be this massive vacuum. England didn't want another India on their hands. So it, it uh, it went through very well. We came back to England. My father worked there for a year. England uh, in the 70s was really horrible. London was dark, dark, dirty. Oh, Anyway, so my father lasted about a year. And then he got another job in the Seychelles Islands, a very sad childhood. And my brothers and I went to boarding schools. And that was also very informative. We all went to Catholic boarding schools. And of course, it's a religious community, and um, it, it was it was very influential in in many ways in my life. But I think what I I came away from that education and my experience living with my parents, but particularly my father, was of a kind, gentle, benevolent God. And of course, Catholics don't read scriptures. You know, we we refer to them on Sundays and we will read from them, but it's certainly not a curriculum. And um, so I, you know, I, I knew all the favorite passages that everybody loved. When I graduated from uh, that boarding school, I was actually head girl the last year. And I think I was as obnoxious as Percy, to be quite honest, um, just a female version of him. And uh, uh, anyway, I went to Germany for a year. It was my gap year, and I was going to be reading German at university, and I thought it needed some improving. And so I I was in Germany for about a year, and that's where I met the church. I had a very dear friend who happened to be LDS, which is extraordinary, really, you know, because there aren't that many outside of Utah, and there are very few uh, in Europe and in Germany. But I agreed. I, I I was going through a sort of a faith crisis of my own, trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life and praying a lot. And she had no temerity about talking about God. I mean, nobody else wants to talk about God. You're 19 years old. and Who wants to talk about God, really? <laughs> um, she was older than I, but she, you know, she had no problems having conversations. It was just really, really delightful. And she... Um, she had a, a, an enormous impact on my life. She was a very beautiful woman. Anyway, she um, she asked me if I'd like to go to church with her one day. And I said, well, I've got nothing better to do, really. So, um, yeah, I'll come. Sure. And it was feeling very magnanimous, open-minded. <laughs> but it was quite extraordinary. So it's a, in uh, Wiesbaden. It's a, a, a little, well, it's a bigger community outside of Frankfurt, but there are very few LDS people. So we didn't have a church building. We met in a room on the second floor. And I remember walking into that just very ordinary room. But as I crossed the, crossed the threshold, I felt something I'd not felt before in my life. And it just kind of woke me up. It's like, oh, what was that? Did anybody else feel that? And it was like, so it, it's like, okay, you need to pay more attention now, Fiona. And so um, my conversion was was really quite rapid. And I had some very, very sacred experiences during that period, which have actually kept me in the church because there was 
no way I could deny that they had not happened. So mm. this, th one of the very interesting things is that um, the missionaries left me with a tape. It must have been a general conference. And we had those old tapes and tape recorders in the olden days. And I, I like to listen with my eyes closed. So everybody thinks I'm asleep in sacrament meeting. It was really unfortunate, but I, I listen better when I'm not distracted. So it was dark and I, I turned on the tape. Um, it was President Kimball. And, you know, I was getting used to his voice. It's like, okay, so he has throat problems. Sounds like he might have cancer or had cancer, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then I got used to his voice and I have no idea what he said. But I had this very strong impression that I was actually listening to um, the voice of a prophet of God, not necessarily the prophet, but somebody who was speaking for God. And that resonated very strongly with me because there is no such allegiance, I don't think, to the Pope. I never felt that way. But, you know, this this was a representative. And so I I, I started taking the lessons more seriously and... And then decided to become baptized. It was a most unfortunate time to join the church. One, to join the church in Germany, uh, where the uh, Rote Armee, um, which was a terrorist gang, was still active, blowing things up, and where the Moonies were gain gaining lots of converts. So you can imagine my family. They're a very traditional English family. And I come home and I say, I'm going to be a terrorist, or I'm going to be a Mooney, or I'm actually going to be a Mormon. And it's like, okay, so what is the difference in any of those three? It was devastating for my family. And I just thought, you know, they'd, you know, they'd see, you know, a transformation. They didn't see a transformation. It was just their normal child gone completely mad. And um, they couldn't understand it because really Mormonism, Moonies, terrorist gangs, they were all of one piece. Um, they were dangerous um, and they were cults. And that was definitely the impression I had. In fact, um, unfortunately, I should have gone to see my parents and talk to them about this before I joined the church. But I listened to some um, bad advice and rang my mother. And I remember her answering the phone and I said, mom, I'm going to become a Mormon. And she said, what? Brigham Young and all those wives. Oh. And well, Brigham Young and all those wives are not part of the missionary discussions. In fact, polygamy does not figure in missionary discussions at mm. all. So I had no idea what she was talking about. And it was like, well, no, maybe you're thinking of another religious tradition because um, I, none of the people I've met here are polygamists. And anyway, so it just completely fractured my family. It was like the most devastating devastating news they've ever had and from which they've never recovered they had great hopes for me you know aspirationally they you know they just thought you know that I was going places <laughs> and then I called them and so they've never recovered wow. they've never recovered I damaged my family in such a way that that damage is not correctable and the relationship is irretrievable and I have had to live with that pain all, all of my life. And it still is painful. I, uh, my patriarchal blessing said that my, my immediate family would join the church. And I was 18. So it was like, okay, so it was going to happen soon or in my lifetime. And now I recognize that it's not, but I'm older. And it's, you know, my time, 
my idea of time has expanded somewhat. But anyway, so that was um, the most painful experience of my life. And I couldn't join. Mm. It's like, I cannot lose my family for this. And so for about six months, I waffled. I tried to go back to Catholic mass, but there was something missing. And and then, you know, I love Shakespeare, but sometimes he does come in at the most inopportune Mm -hmm. times. But the words that kept coming back to me is, above all to thine own self be true thou canst not then be false to any man and it's like you know those that line just kept coming back and back and it's like you know um i i was converted and um i could either you know face up to the music and follow through with the baptism or live a half life because there would always be that in the back of my mind you you didn't quite do it you felt so strongly that you should and live my life a coward. I don't know. Maybe I'm being overly dramatic, but that's how it felt at the time. So do you mind if, if I jump oh, in? I want to ask you a question regarding what you just shared, which just feels everything in me wants to just pause and be like, oh, the grief that you're describing and how challenging that had to have been for this young woman and the loss of a family and what you know, we're all, at least I know I'm conditioned to believe that like, oh, they're going to come around and everybody's going to be just fine. <laughs> right. And yet that's not real life. Real life doesn't no. actually work that way oftentimes. And so I guess what I'm wondering no. if with this kind of vantage point that you're at um, all these years later, recognizing so much of what you've learned about the complexities of the church I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I know, you know, we've talked quite a bit and I know that both of us feel that there's so much goodness and beauty in this church. There's so much goodness and beauty in all of God's churches and in the secular world. And that there's just so much goodness and beauty in the truths that we can find everywhere. And yet you can't also deny that you, for whatever reason, had a little call to come here and to be with this little community of people for some reason, not necessarily maybe because it's like the only one way that anybody can return back to God, but for some reason you are still called here. Can you speak a little bit with your years of experience in life and how things have unfolded? What have you learned about that experience Um, as it has unfolded and why you're here, here in this church? Yes. Yes. It is a painful experience. Uh, Terrell was really helpful. Uh, so th- this is actually quite delightful. I'll just tell you this and then I can move into that. But um, yeah. I was working in the church office buildings in Frankfurt and um, there are many women work in that building who are not married. And um, we had a professor from BYU come to visit his family and um, his aunt liked to introduce him to all of the eligible young women in the building of whom I was one. By the time he got to me, he was shaking like a leaf. And it was like, I just, it's okay. I'm not going to ask you to marry me. It's like, calm down. It's, it's, it's okay. It's really okay. I mean, he might've had a, you know, a biological thing. I don't know, but it was, he just seemed really, really upset. And so I just needed to calm him down. But he talked about this incredible um, discipline called comparative literature. And I'd never heard of it before, but it sounded fabulous. I spoke French and German and then just being able to amalgamate Um, the literature of these three languages together, it sounded fabulous, but it was like, I can't take this class from you because 
I'm obviously scaring you to death and I'm I'm just feeling very uncomfortable myself. So the only other person teaching, there was only one other professor teaching. And I signed up for that class and Terrell was in it. So I met him on the first day of class. But how I got to America is really quite extraordinary. I had applied for a multiple entry student visa mm. and I'd saved my money. And I had a job at BYU because everybody in the church, office buildings or anything to do, BYU or anywhere coming through Europe always comes to Frankfurt. And so I had a uh, a 20 hour uh, week job at the study abroad office. Mm. And um, so I was, you know, thought I was set. It was good. BYU accepted me. I went, trotted off to the embassy in Frankfurt, you know, to get my visa, waited there for a very long time. Four hours later, it seemed like four hours, this woman came out and she was holding my papers and she was really upset. And she said, you know, I don't know how you expect to live on this amount of money in the United States for four years. And I said, well, I, I do have the job and I have a lot of money I've saved. I don't know that it was that much, probably not. I thought he was a lot. Anyway, declarative, no, you're not coming into the United States. You're not getting a visa. And so, you know, at that point, it's like, oh, okay. The only other person after a declarative no from the U.S. Embassy who could get me into the United States was the president of the United States. And I didn't know the president of the United States. So it's like, okay, that's it. And I'd, I happened to be hopping from the servicemen's ward is a massive um, military base, American military base in Frankfurt, and the German ward. And I'd hop from one to the other. Well, of course, the servicemen's ward is primarily soldiers. And I was very close to the bishop. I, I needed a family. They, you know, I really missed my family. They incorporated into their family with their beautiful boys. Anyway, it just so happened that we had a new family move into the ward the, year, the week before. Do you know what his job was? He was head of the international visa section at the American consulate. The one person who could reverse that decision, apart from the president of the United States, was this man. Wow. So that was the most extraordinary thing. So he said, oh, I'll have her multiple entry visa for her in a week. And I had came back, you know, back to the States, met Terrell and, you know, such is history. But um, it has it has been very difficult living um, with my family's opprobrium, I think, but it was deep, deep hurt. Um, it manifested itself in anger, but they, I had done the unforgivable. It's like I had joined a cult yeah, and it was so far from their minds that I would ever do such a thing. So um, just having Terrell's mind, his mind was so bright, so alert. He had such innovative ideas. Mm. Um, that, that, that was really helpful. Um, and, um, he was courteous and kind and, uh, and, and struggled with me through the pain, um, of losing my family. And, um, you know, then we, you know, grew up in the church as we do. And I had various experiences, but I think the most formative experience, um, I, I I found that I I did not integrate myself into church culture as was anticipated. Mm -hmm. So there was one ward in particular, and there were several women who feared for my eternal salvation and that of my family. 
because I didn't support scouts. My boys did not like to go to scouts. And it was kind of like, okay, you've got a choice. You can go to scouts or seminary, which do you want to do? And they said, well, we'd rather do seminary. And that was fine with me because I was a seminary teacher. So I could, you know, kind of, you know, see what they were learning, kind of guide. But, you know, these sisters were really concerned at me with me and told me quite categorically that because I did not support the scouting program, I would never make it to the celestial kingdom and neither would my children. So it was, you know, it's that that sort of thing. And it's like, you know, I could have been very chagrined. You know, I was just a little ticked. It's like, okay, this is my family. So I'm grateful that you're concerned about my eternal welfare, but not really. And, and so, so that, that was good for me because I was able in my own mind anyway, to differentiate, okay, what is important for my family and what is not important for my family. And I had met Douglas Baden-Powell, the initiator of scouts, and I knew his history. So I was quite fine with my boys not joining the scouting program because of his history, um, the founder of the Boy Scout program. But it was uncomfortable nonetheless, and that was probably good for me. Um, to learn to be uncomfortable and, and and having to choose, you know, what what is best for my family, and then I got involved in different other projects that I that I thought were important. My family was supportive. Um, it 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 was a good difficult time, you know, struggling. Uh, my husband's salary, starting salary at the University of Richmond, was surprisingly low. But we were grateful for anything at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so my my life sort of developed ordinarily. And then it wasn't until it really, I think that was the defining moment of my transition because I'd be thinking about God. I'd been uncomfortable with the Old Testament because now I read it for the first time and it was a subject of study. But some things just did not jive with me and um, seemed to be antithetical to the nature of God, at least the God with whom I had grown up. That God was unerringly beautiful, kind, generous, and loving, primarily because my father was that way, I think. Mm -hmm. And so this God was such a juxtaposition. So I just kind of shelved it. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then it came to a time where that could not be shelved anymore. I had to look at that uh, more particularly and I was very close friends with Zina Nibley Peterson at the time. And she was uh, a medievalist teaching at BYU. And this was years and years ago. We we're having dinner and she said, have you heard of Julian of Norwich? I think you'd be interested in her, in her writings. And that was a conversion. Wow. So it was like the conversion, the initial conversion. But then there was this period, I'm not sure where I am. I'm not sure that I'm particularly comfortable. I do know there are, there are things that I don't like about the practice and I won't I won't enforce that with my family because I would like time with my family. So I was, you know, head girl enough to say, I actually don't think that this is going to be really detrimental to my children's eternal salvation. But I was able to make those distinctions. And I think that was important for me. And, you know, it got me in trouble with some of the sisters in the Relief Society. But it was like, you know, that's okay. If if, if you want to support that, that's fine. I just don't have the time. I need family time. Um, and I don't have the time for my children to, to do both. And I want to be able to see them um, um, during the week. So, yeah, life went on normally. Harry Potter came along. 
<laughs> and I found myself reading aloud to the entire neighborhood because all of the children would say, okay, mom's reading Mary- Harry Potter tonight. Everybody come. So they'd come in with their pillows and their blankets and the sitting room would be full of kids while I was reading Harry Potter. So those were happy, happy days. And then Zina introduced me to Julia. And that, that was the revelation for me. The God of Julian was the God I'd always worshipped, but I hadn't been able to give him a form. It had always been in contradiction to what I was being taught, to what I was learning in the Old Testament. But when I read her for the first time, it's like God appeared in his splendor and his beauty. And I knew this was the God I worshipped. And then it was through another, a, a series of other really beautiful experiences. Terrell and I were in Cedar City and it was so, we were in a mountainous area. We weren't in the city itself. We were, I know we were up high. It was really beautiful. There was a pond that reminded me of Switzerland and all the vegetation. And then we came back and we were sitting in Switzerland looking at these red mountains. And it was like, okay, so this, it was just it was it was odd, uh, but sacred. And we, we you know it was the olden days, so we had our scriptures. So I went to the script to the car to get the scriptures. It just happened to turn to Moses seven. And as I was reading, uh, I this was going to sound very awkward and probably strange, but something happened in the air, and I was wondering, okay, so is this altitude? Is this temperature differentiation? It's like as I was speaking Moses seven into, I was reading it aloud the air was crystallizing or something. And I remember thinking, oh, well, this is really peculiar. It must be an altitude. I wonder what it is. I wish I knew more chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, that that was that, got into the car. And, oh, my goodness, I don't know whether I'm giving everybody more detail than they really want. I was in a, uh, had a Bruce Willis crush stage at that time. So I was watching all of the move, movies Bruce Willis was in. And then I happened to watch this one film called Tears of the Sun, don't watch it. Nobody watched this. It was, it's absolutely the most awful, awful film about genocide in Africa. And of course I'm African. So I just um, turned off the TV and started yelling at God. And I said, you know, I, first of all, I want you to know, I don't want to be a God. (laughs) I really don't. I I don't want to experience this on a personal societal, familial, global basis. And are you seeing somebody? I was very Jewish. So I was shouting. I was not at all respectful. It was very, and I was saying, you know, I said, I just want you to know right now, I don't want to be a God because I don't want your job because I don't know how you can stand it. How can you look at this and survive? And I hope you're taking something for it or seeing somebody for it. So, um, so then I thought, so I'm dismissing you because this is awful. And, and just so that we're clear that I don't want to be any part of your existence. And I certainly don't want to become a God if I've got to endure this for the rest of eternity. And so I sat down and I went through my little pantheon of gods and um, I discarded them one after the other. And then I realized that our God was the only God who had sacrificed himself for humanity. The only God who had, who did not require sacrifice, but had sacrificed himself. And then that Moses seven came back and it was like, 
I felt I needed to read that again. So I opened the scriptures and this God emerged from the scriptures. This beautiful, weeping, vulnerable God. And it is, I am God. And then it, you are deserving of all adoration because of what you have done for your children. And that was it. And then um, Terrell and I, I started sharing these ideas with Terrell and we he started researching. I was doing more research. I immersed myself in the early church fathers and it was like, this is the God of the restoration. And I read Jacob 5, uh, but Moses 7, it was like, this is God. And this God is deserving of adoration and respect for what he has done. And I am privileged and honored to be in his service. And may I always be in his service. And it was God the Father at the time, because he was the one who was being blasphemed, not the son. It was always the father. And, and then it just realized it just can't work. The father and the son cannot be that diametrically opposed. If he is the son of, the God, of God and he is doing what his father is doing, then this God, whom I be, have been taught to believe, is not, is not God. And so the vulnerable, um, the God who weeps, came out of that and my life changed. I was teaching high school French and German at the time. And um, I just had this feeling, okay, you're done. You're done. And so I resigned. And it was because of this, because then this book was coming and um, we were both writing and the ideas came so quickly. And so it, it was just, it, it, that book was no work. It was like, it just came. And then, so of course, after that came, the, the uh, Crucible of Doubt is primarily Terrell's work. It was a letter he'd written to uh, a, a relative of ours who was struggling. And I, you know, I helped him with it, but primarily the ideas were his. So the next one really, it, it went from the God who weeps to the Christ who heals. And it was inevitable. And once you go from the God who weeps to the Christ who heals, who is imitating God, then suddenly the vocabulary has to change um, because God can no longer be defined as almighty, as one who needs to be obeyed, as a tyrant. It's all of this, this religious vocabulary we have been using. Sovereign mm -hmm. um, is, is not God. God is not sovereign. And um, and then I, I realized, I don't know, sometime in that process, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. And I had always seen that through a medieval lens, liege lord and vassal. Yeah. We were required to kneel before the sovereign. But then I realized that the whole world was genuflecting and people were saying, oh, but I knew you as Buddha or I knew you as Allah, but you are also called Christ, and this is your father. And it, it was just 
beautiful. It was so strong. It was so beautiful. I felt that I was actually there. And so the the kneeling was spontaneous. It was love, but it was love from us. It wasn't required. The kneeling was not required. Mm. The whole global community knelt because we recognized him. We recognized whom we'd been worshiping all this time and and what he had done for us. And, um, and so then we felt the vocabulary needed to shift, that the vocabulary we're using to describe God the Father in particular was not deserving or accurate. And so that's when um, all things new mm-hmm. came. And it was just sort of, it just, it just came. It was just sort of a, a natural evolution, God who weeps, Christ who heals, and this is the vocabulary that is theirs. And when we worship them, we should understand that we are worshiping Father, not an almighty God who dispenses judgment and punishment and but who gave him who gave his life and who gave his son's life that we might live. So that's it in a nutshell, really. Wasn't really a nutshell, was it? <laughs> a big nutshell. <laughs> I I am so grateful for your sharing that that timeline of starting very very early on in your beautiful life and then moving on to the present and actually what I want to do is I'm going to share with you my reflections and thoughts on what you just shared in answer to my own musings about your life so I know that sounds kind of funny but and this may be a little strange for you to hear Fiona but I'm just musing I'm just thinking out loud I'm thinking about a Okay, bear with me with my free association here. I'm thinking about a church tradition that is American-born, American-made, right? You know, in the early part of the 19th century, inheriting a lot of the inevitable baggage that comes with that period of time. And Mm -hmm. you take with that the typical and inevitable woundedness of not only humanity, but also throw on top of that patriarchy. And the struggles mm-hmm. that are innate in a small church tradition that is going to bring along and increase the baggage that it carries along with it, alongside of some very beautiful nuggets of truth, goodness, and revelation. Okay, so complex mm-hmm. system that begins that we are a part of. Okay, and then you have the church growing rapidly and most rapidly, of course, here in its home country, the United States of America, which is going to be once again nested in its own culture, its own time with its own blind spots. That also, as time goes by, is increasingly forgetting about the true nature of God. And Mm -hmm. then I think about... God, our parents, seeing that we've lost relationship with them and that we've forgotten who they really are, and that there is a wound and a rift between their natures and our understanding of their natures here in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it's my feeling my proposal that perhaps an African-born British woman 
with a classical education who isn't raised inside of the majority culture is born and given an assignment to help us return back to the nature, the true nature of a loving God and a savior that is able to truly heal us because we have been forgiven before we are even created. And so you have these experiences that are incredibly painful and that estrange you from a family that doesn't understand you and you in the meantime don't probably understand yourself what's going on as far as why am I called to do this thing that is exacting a huge price that you pay in a religion that as you learn and grow you recognize that it's not perfect it's far from perfect and yet it has a small body of beautiful human beings who love God and seek for truth and yet they don't have a healthy understanding of God and so through your life's experiences and your own wrestles and your own struggles and your own background and your own education it falls upon you to help us by these books that you have written that are teaching us how to come back into contact with a God who weeps and a Christ who heals. And maybe that's part of the reason why you have come to us and have become a part of and remain a part of this wounded, messy, struggling institution of beautiful human beings trying to make their way back to God. Anything you have to, I'm, I'm done for a second. I need to like, you know, wipe my face um, out. I, I don't think I've heard more beautiful words, more um, encouraging, more validating of my life. Um, I am so grateful to you, Valerie, for your love and your friendship and for um, uh, revealing to me a life I had never seen in that light and filled my heart with gratitude for the decisions I made and for people with whom I feel honored to be living and struggling and trying to make the world a better place. The privilege is mine. And for all that you do, all that you're doing in all of those lives to lift the hands that hang down, what a privilege it is for me to know you and for me to have been speaking with you this is one of the most um, religious experiences of my life, funnily enough. But I am so grateful to you for it. It really is healing because um, in my mind and in my heart, there is always my family and always the pain. 
Thank you. Thank you for those beautiful words. I'm just so grateful for you. I'm grateful for a new friend. And as we kind of joked in our last time together, I feel like our stories have been different. But in earlier conversations, we both have talked and shared about how we have both felt in our own unique ways that we have been asked to use our voices mm-hmm. to speak truth and to bring a greater measure of love um, into our own small community of believers. And it's just been such a pleasure to 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 meet you, to be with you, to connect with you in ways that help us both see and hopefully help us both feel heartened and encouraged by one another, that we can continue yes. to do this beautiful, yes. sacred work that we are doing to yes. help people. Yes, so. you have most definitely enheartened me, um, buoyed me. I am so grateful to you, Valerie. Thank you for that gift. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I think this is a beautiful time to I don't know that we could say or do anything to end this better than what we have shared with each other today. And I think it's extra special that this this is a conversation that I quite frankly forgot we were recording. <laughs> I just didn't be <laughs> present with you, Fiona. So have I, actually. <laughs> um, no, it, it has been such a beautiful, spiritually empowering conversation for me. Thank you. And healing. Really healing. Thank you. I'm so grateful for that. That's all I, that's, that's what my heart wants for each of us is to feel when I was, I'll close with this little story, but I, I'm what's always present with me in the work that I do each and every day, whether it be through this podcast or in my small groups or as a therapist, doing sort of my more traditional work because I I am reminded back to my Nazarene University graduate education Mm -hmm. was one of the professors said that we want people when they sit with us to feel that we are a mirror through which they can know of God's love through them as we sit with them and so that has been my my primary goal and directive in my own work that through sitting with me people will feel deeply of god's love for them regardless of and perhaps even because of whatever the wounds are that they sit with me wanting to to speak about and to heal from and in that place of openness and acceptance and unconditional love the body and the spirit knows how to heal it does its own work when the environment is fertile, because love is the ingredient that does the healing. Okay, so Thank let's you go so ahead. much for sharing that. You're mm-hmm. welcome. Okay, let's go ahead and close. I want to thank all of you for being here with me on this beautiful, um, this experience that Fiona and I got to share with one another. If this podcast is meaningful for you and helps give you perspective, helps you see your place, your role, your lovability in God's eyes, and in any small way is helping you see ways that you can also just bring more love, more acceptance, more inclusion to our small community here in our church or around it or wherever you are. 
God's love for you is independent of where you situate yourself in any kind of religious community. And so if you're interested in learning more about how you can be a part of my community, go ahead and reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com. You can find me at LatterdayStruggles.com. Or if you would, please rate and review this podcast. And thank you all for being here. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.